We continue today in our Lenten sermon series that we have titled Lent with Luke, where each week we are visiting a different story in the Gospel of Luke as Jesus journeys through that Gospel towards Jerusalem. And we are considering with each story where and how it is Jesus' words may offer shape and direction for our discipleship, for our living of the faith in these days. And so today we turn to what are perhaps some of the most familiar verses in all the scriptures, the parable of the prodigal. We are picking the prodigal up right where it begins, but it's important to remember if you're looking at it in your pew Bibles that this is the final of three parables that Jesus tells in quick succession. And they begin with an introduction where Jesus, it says, has gathered with with sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumble. I mention that because I always want to note that when we hear those Pharisees and scribes, we have to be careful not to let that word and those characters send us into a place where we are blaming the Jewish people for what happened to Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes here can be understood to look a lot like us. They are the people who come to church. They are the people who have read their Bible. They are the people who know the rules. And it is to them and to us that Jesus speaks this parable. Friends, let us continue now listening for a word from God. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and that son began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And that son longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father, he saw him, and he was filled with compassion For his youngest son, and he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother, he became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, like a father running to his lost child, we pray that you will send your spirit towards us and that through its work, the words of my mouth and the meditations of of all of our hearts gathered here in your sight might be pleasing, glorifying. For you and you alone, O God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was a man who had two sons. It's funny, don't you think, the things that we overlook with enough time and familiarity. I'm married to an amazing person. So amazing, in fact, that she will take my dirty running clothes and she'll wash them and she'll dry them. And she'll put them back in the hamper and she will even go through the trouble of putting them there on my side of the bed. Now for a normal person, they would see this hamper and they would think to themselves, himself, look at these clean clothes. I think it's time that I fold them and organize them and put them away. But with enough time, it's as if that hamper just blends in. I'll come in that first day and I'll think, ah, clean running clothes, great. I'll come in the next day and I'll think, still, they're they're clean running clothes right there. Mm. By the end of the week, they're still sitting there and I hardly even notice them. With enough time and enough familiarity, we sometimes miss the things that are right in front of us. Is it not the same thing with the parable of the prodigal? If I were to ask you what this story is about, what 
do you think you would summarize the plot as being? I think I would say something like the parable of the prodigal is about a, a thankless, greedy, wasteful, debauching child who, who runs away from home and he squanders everything that he has been bestowed with. And only when he hits rock bottom does he realize the errors of his way. And he comes home and he's embraced by that, that loving parent and there's this this great feast, and they rejoice that what has been lost is now found. And I would be right, but I think I would also be wrong. Because there was a man who had two sons. I think we sometimes deal with the older brother in this story a bit like I deal with the laundry basket on my side of the bed. He's there, but we rarely notice or even acknowledge his presence. And even when we do remember the older brother in this story, we tend to remember him as this old man, this grumbling type of man, the one who just doesn't get how this grace stuff works. Someone, in other words, not like us. Because we are good and decent people. We are people who don't wait until Easter to come to church. We come to church on the fourth Sunday in Lent. We're well-mannered. We are people who, who get it, aren't we? Friends, I think this parable should make us wonder if in those presuppositions we might be wrong. I was pointed this past week towards a wonderful but challenging short story called Revelation by the great 20th century Southern writer Flannery O'Connor. It is a story that opens with a scene of an old woman named Mrs. Turpin and her husband Claude coming into the waiting room of their small town 1950s doctor's office. Claude has been kicked by a cow on the farm and she's brought him there to be treated. Almost as soon as she enters the waiting room of that doctor's office, this dialogue, both internal and spoken, begins to unfurl and it makes clear that Mrs. Turpin views herself as being superior to just about every single person in that room. She sees the child with a snotty nose and she judges its mother who apparently has not noticed enough to lean over and wipe it with a Kleenex. Next to that mother and child, there's another mother and child who look ragged and poor and she, she terms them in her mind as white trash. There's the African-American boy who brings lunch to the nurse's station The only person she seems to think maybe even close to being on her level is a well-dressed woman who is sitting there with her college-age daughter who is buried in a book on human development. And as the scene continues, Mrs. Turpin takes solace in the fact that she is not like these people. She goes to church. 
She helps people in need, even white trash people in need. She's a good person. But inside and outside, these snide comments just keep getting slipped in. And with each one, that college-age girl looks, glares, really, at Mrs. Turpin with these darkening eyes. And then it reaches a point where Mrs. Turpin shares with anyone in the room who wants to hear these things. She says, you know, if it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making the way it is. It could have been different for me. No sooner do those words leave her mouth that that college-age girl, she takes her book and she throws it straight at Mrs. Turpin and hits her between the eyes and she launches herself at her. Apparently her arrogance has, has reached the tipping point for this girl and the doctors and nurses rush out and they, they restrain this girl and they sedate her. And as Mrs. Turpin regains her bearings, she sits up on the floor and she asks hoarsely to the girl, what do you have to say to me? And that girl raises her head and locks her gaze on Mrs. Turpin and whispers, Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. (laughs) Now everyone in the waiting room after the girl has been taken away agrees that she must have been a lunatic, bound for the asylum, they say. But Mrs. Turpin, she cannot shake that experience. Those words haunt her. And when her and Claude return to the farm, she goes out to the pig pen at sunset, and there she has an angry conversation with God. How am I like them, she yells to God. There's plenty of trash out there. How am I like them? And she lifts her head, O'Connor writes. And suddenly in that moment of wrath and anger, of self-righteousness and self-assuredness, she has a vision. She saw, O'Connor writes, a purple streak in the sky that appeared as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. And upon it were a vast horde of souls that were tumbling upward toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives. And bands of blacks and white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom Mrs. Turpin recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. And she leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior, and they alone were on key, and yet she could see by their shocked 
and altered faces, even their virtues, were being burned away. There was a man who had two sons. One did everything wrong. One did everything right. He had common sense, respectable behavior. He went to school. He had degrees on his wall. He was always polite at the dinner table. He worked hard out in the fields. He helped others. He, he came to church. He was the kind of kid that other parents would seek out their children and say, why can't you be more like him? He was the one who neighbors would sometimes stop by just to tell his parents how kind and helpful their boy was. If it's one thing I am, that older brother was prone to say, it's grateful. Thank you, God, he would sometimes whisper. Thank you, God, for making everything the way it is. But when the smell of roasting meat and the sound of music and the almost forgotten cadence of his lost brother's voice carried on the breeze that night, it felt like a book had landed square between his eyes. And he was angry. All of this for him? For that bum? For that wanderer who only calls home when the account runs dry? For that person who clearly does not belong? All of this for that snotty-nosed kid and that negligent parent? All of this for the face and that mugshot on the 5 p.m. news? All of this for that drug addict, that lunatic? All of this for that trash? Those weary eyes that glare at me from the other side of the room or the window, the gate, the wall. What do you have to say to me, he wanted to ask his brother. But before the words could form in his mouth, he had a vision. A vision of a father's love that was wide enough for two sons for two very different and yet equally lost children. Love that came running out to him in the field, shouting words that felt like a bridge to heaven itself. You are always with me. All I have is yours. All that is lost has been found. Now come, come and join the feast. Come and know. That joy. Friends, some of us here today are no doubt the prodigal. But many of us, I think, are the older brothers and sisters of the world. People who are far from perfect but have nonetheless been so busy toiling in the fields of living up to expectations, so busy doing what is right that in the process we have become numb and even resentful to the fact that the feast of the prodigal, the joy of God's ever-widening circle of love, that it is for us as well. And so the question in this story, the question becomes, how will it end? Mrs. Turpin's story, it ends with her vision at the pig pen. 
The older brother, his story ends with his vision out in the field. Do they carry on, you think? Or do they go home? Do they go inside, I wonder, and take their seat at that table and let their lives be turned upside down by the feast that is served at it? A meal of foolish, extravagant, unexplainable, virtue-incinerating, relationship-reconciling grace. How does it end, you think? How does it end for them And how does it end for us? I woke up early on Friday morning and I found that hamper of clean running clothes and I picked out some shorts and a shirt and I I went out the door for a run. I like to run out to the end of Gascoigne Bluff where there is that fishing pier. And when the the weather is nice, I like to go out on the pier and I pray. I pray for our world, but I also pray for our church. I pray for you all by name. I pray for, for the sick and for the grieving. I pray for those who are expecting, and I pray for those who are hopeless, And I pray too, and I did on Friday morning when I'm preparing to put words on paper for a sermon. I pray that whatever lands on that paper might be God's voice for that day and for for that place. So I went out on the pier on Friday, and it was unbelievable. The sky, it was purple. The, the sun had just popped above the trees, and the water winding through the marsh, it was as still as I had ever seen, like glass. And the air was cool and damp, and there was this weight to the stillness in that moment. And the only way I can describe it is that I had this, this vision This vision that burned away whatever ego, whatever inflated sense of self-importance, whatever anxiety it was I was carrying in that moment. It was a vision of, of God's amazing grace, of the wideness of God's mercy as the wideness of that vista unfolding across those marshes. And as I turned to leave, three birds came swooping down. And they swept across that glass without touching it. And it was still. And I knew how I wanted the story to end. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.